Good Friday. Shall we read it? We shall. You don't have a choice. (laughs) Read it with me if you like or close your eyes and imagine it. Let's go back a little while. It's Matthew 27 verse 32. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross, his being Jesus. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, and I believe that's because that's the way the rocks looked before many earthquakes have been and destroyed it, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And when they sat down and kept watch over him there, and over his head they put the charge against him which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. They mocked him. And saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes, the elders mocked him, that being the religious elite, saying he saved others, but he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross. And we will believe in him then. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also um, reveled him in the same way. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all of the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. Eli, Eli, Lima, <laughs> Should have practiced it. Sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah comes to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and yielded up his spirit. We know that that voice is actually what we were singing in that song from other accounts. It is finished. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. That's the, if you don't know, the barrier between what the Jews believed was the place where some could go and God's presence. It was torn from two, from top to bottom, as if from the hands of God himself. And the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and the tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And when the centurions and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was Son of God. They realized something significant was happening. 
They realized after the fact, like most significant things in our life, right? They realized it afterwards. But even they realizing that this death was not just another death, another execution, another prisoner that needed to be taken out of society. As they stood there, they realized there was something significant about this one. But they had no idea of the true significance. I mean, even history is still telling the story of its true significance. And I think the future will only tell more of the story of the true significance of Good Friday. President Richard Nixon was quoted as saying on the day of the moon landing that this is the most significant day in human history. But it wasn't even close. It maybe wouldn't even make it into the top 20, really, when you think of history. This day of the crucifixion and this weekend of Easter has had a far greater impact on the human story than any other days could even come close to. It's caused millions and millions of people to reshape their lives. It's caused people to cross oceans to tell of its story. And it's caused people to go to death for choosing not to let go of the story. It is so significant. Theologians often talk about how you can study the crucifixion for your entire life and still not come to the end of its mysteries. So there feels like a lot of pressure on Good Friday. You know, we can twirl the cross, if you would, and look at it from different angles. You could spin it around like you spin around your hand and you see different parts depending on the angle and the light that you look at it. And the cross is like that. You know, we can look at it as a story of redemption, and it is. We can look at it as a story of love, and it is. A story of reconciliation, of debts being paid, and it is all of those things. We can use this real Bible word, atonement. We could look at it through that, and it is those things. So I was praying, which, which angle should we take this Good Friday? You know, we can't. The point's not to explain it in its fullness, but just to get a glimpse of some of what it might mean. And I would like, to look at it, I would like us to look at it through the lens of kingdoms. Kingdoms. It's not a popular way of looking at it. That made me want to do it, probably. <laughs> See, kingdoms are our world's attempt to create human flourishing under our own rule. Kingdoms are what happens when we try to control things. And there's all sorts of kingdoms throughout the ages, and there's all sorts of kingdoms that exist within the ages right now. There's kingdoms of gold, and there's kingdoms of silver. There's kingdoms of iron and clay and bronze. There's kingdoms of materialism, ways to create human flourishing of power and control, kingdoms of politics, kingdoms of pleasure, kingdoms of theories and philosophies, kingdoms of secularism, which would be the dominant kingdom we live in, a world interpreted without God. 
And some have said that secularism is like us trying to achieve the kingdom without the king. Trying to achieve love and diversity and identity and expression of self, but all without a king. Sometimes that's us as Christians. We want the kingdom without the king, don't we? We want the peace, the joy, the love, the blessings, but without God really being in charge. I think kingdoms can be thought of as the realm of effective rule. That a kingdom extends as far as what somebody says actually goes. When you think about that, our kingdoms are tiny. And most people's are, but the cultural kingdoms are massive. Kingdoms ask for our allegiance. Not always in obvious ways, like singing to a flag or bowing down to a statue. More often in subtle ways, kingdoms ask for our allegiance. They ask us to live our lives according to their values. And when our will syncs up with the kingdom's will, we become a part of that kingdom's rule. Like every time we go and buy something that we don't really need, we become a part of the kingdom of materialism. And so there's this old dream that a king had about 500 years before Jesus. King Nebuchadnezzar is his name. And he dreams this dream, and he's the king of the most powerful empire in all of the world at the time, the Babylonian Empire. And nobody can tell him what the dream is or what it means except this man of God. And in Daniel 2 verse 31, it says, You saw, O king, and behold a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image, picture a giant statue if you would, was one of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze and its legs of iron and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and it broke them in pieces. Then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors, like dust blowing in the wind. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of these kingdoms could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and it filled the whole earth. This was the dream And now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, this is like a bit of buttering up, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, and until whose hand he is given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. He has to tread lightly because he knows where the dream goes, right? Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all of the earth. Speaking of the Greek kingdom, 
And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, and because iron breaks into pieces and shatters all things, and like iron that it crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle, speaking of the Roman Empire. And straight away we can think of to what we first read and hear the two kingdoms colliding. Oh, the guards of Rome and the sign that says King of the Jews and there's all of these contrasts of kingdom. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw the stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and then it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. As we look at the cross we see the establishment of God's kingdom. Some have said that God's kingdom was present in the life of Jesus. It was proclaimed in his preaching. It was glimpsed by his miracles. It was established by his death. It was inaugurated by his resurrection. And it is now being advanced by his Holy Spirit through the church and will be consummated in Christ's return. The stone not cut from human hands is mentioned in all the Gospels but John, as well as in Acts and Peter, and it uses Psalm 118 verse 22, saying, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Paul would write in Romans 9.33, Behold, I'm laying in Zion, that is Jerusalem, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. 1 Corinthians 10.4, and it said, All who drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. The rock was Christ. And in the midst of our world kingdoms, this rock that is Christ, not cut from any human hands, no glory to any human kingdom, smashes into the kingdoms of this world to set up shop. It's his kingdom, and it's the range of King Jesus' effective will. So how does the stone become a mountain that fills the whole earth. At the cross, God is not only establishing his kingdom, he's inviting us into his kingdom. Even the greatest nations are just kingdoms of this world, right? Even the best human eras of, like, uh, uh, times of human flourishing are still just kingdoms of this world. And the kingdom behind all of these kingdoms, we have to know, is Satan's kingdom. And it's been given power 
through sin, that is human error, human not trusting in God's reign. And sin has completed his overpowering reign in our lives through death. And Jesus reverses this. And he embraces death to break sin and to free us from having to live under the reign of the former kingdoms. He didn't destroy kingdoms by might, although I'm sure he could have. He destroyed them by sacrifice. Kingdoms only know war over another kingdom to beat it. But Jesus knows another way. It makes so much sense why the Bible says that the best of human wisdom is just foolishness to God. It's why we see the cross as a stumbling block, because it doesn't have all of the pictures of power we're used to in kingdoms. He didn't destroy kingdoms by might. He destroyed them by sacrifice, by subverting them, by undermining them from the inside out. He used their force against them. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who died at the hands of the Nazis, was a German pastor who stood against the Nazi ways. He said, a king who dies on a cross must be the king of a rather strange kingdom. The kingdoms of this world are built by force, but God's is built by grace. He's not forcing anyone, but he's inviting everyone. It's built by love, not by war. Where kings ask young men to give their lives in war for the king's power, our king gives up his power and goes to war and death so that we might reign with him. He wears a crown of thorns, not a crown of jewels. And rather than holding a rod and a staff, he lets his hands be pierced to an execution cross. We need to understand what God is doing at the cross, especially in light of the world's kingdoms we live in of identity politics that wants to draw lines between us and them and you and me. We, under, we need to understand that the kingdom of women and the kingdom of men, the kingdom of New Zealand, the kingdom of China, the kingdom of Māori and the kingdom of Pākehā, the kingdom of Labour and the kingdom of National or Greens, if you're even that way inclined, the kingdom of Republican or Democrat, of black or white, rich or poor, of materialism, these kingdoms are giving way to a far greater kingdom. C.S. Lewis said, in other words, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel that must lay down his arms. We must lay down our kingdoms for the invitation to be a part of the great kingdom. You cannot take your kingdom into the kingdom. It doesn't work that way. You cannot take your cause into the kingdom. You cannot even take your passions there. Galatians 6, oh, 3, 26 says, For in Christ Jesus you become all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, and there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, and there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ, this new kingdom. So he's inviting us, and if we are willing to let go of our kingdoms, 
Are we good enough to get in? Would we receive the citizenship papers? Do we have the buy-in necessary for this sin tax haven? Just thought of that. Thought it was quite good. (laughs) At the cross, he's establishing his kingdom. At the cross, he's inviting us into his kingdom. And at the cross, he's giving us access to his kingdom. Just because you have an invite for a fancy party doesn't mean you have the clothes. I mean, you can turn up to a black tie event all you like, but if you don't have the black tie, you ain't getting in. Not just any outfit would do for a black tie event. And just because Jesus is inviting you doesn't mean you have the garments required. Hebrews 10, 12 says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. A single sacrifice. I love Revelation 7, 14. It says, They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Man, I don't know if you could imagine what your clothes would look like if you had worn them for your entire life. If they bore the stains and the rips of every mistake, of every bit of hate in your heart, of every bit of lust, of every bit of anger, of every time you went your own way rather than trusted God's way, I would imagine that'd be some pretty tattered clothes. I love Isaiah. It talks about bring your rags. Bring your rags. There's something about the blood that poured out on the cross. It's like the ultimate nappy sand. I don't understand how something red makes something white. But he gives us access through the cross. And finally, at the cross, God is making us a part of his kingdom. He's making us a part of his kingdom. We're not just forgiven for our sins, but he makes us followers of him. If the kingdom was established by the self-giving love of Christ, it will be advanced through the self-giving love of his people, the church. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but Revelations 5, 9 says, and they sung a new song, saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. Speaking of Jesus, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign On the earth. He's making us a part of his kingdom. Not just subjects in the kingdom, but a part of his kingdom. A royal priesthood, if you might. 2 Timothy 2.12 says, The saying is trustworthy, for we have died with him. We will also live with him. 
If we endure, we will also reign with Him. Do you know that God wants you to be so transformed into His likeness that He's able to set you loose to do whatever you want? Because what you want would be what God wants? At the cross, God is transforming us to want what He wants so that we might reign in this kingdom with Him. See, uh, how does a stone not cut by human hands become a mountain? It's when that stone is a cornerstone. And when other people allow their lives to not be cut by human kingdoms, but to be cut by the very hands of God. And they lay those lives on top of the cornerstone and say, build what you will. And as we join our stones through the history of the church onto, it's, it's sort of like Ezekiel talked about, I will take your heart of stone and I'll put in a heart of flesh. And I know we're mixing metaphors now, but it's like, at the cross, you can get something not cut from human hands. You can get something different in here. First Peter 2 verse 5 says, As you come to him, if we're just going to put all of these metaphors together again, listen for it. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, or we could say mountain, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus, for it stands in Scripture, scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness of these other kingdoms and in his marvelous, marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you would not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Can you see some of what God was doing on that Good Friday? He was establishing a kingdom. He was inviting you into a kingdom. He was giving you access to the kingdom. And he was making you a part of that kingdom. So what? Right? So what? Get back to our holiday weekend. What would an appropriate response be to such a revelation? If we realized there was a greater kingdom established on the cross for us, 
a kingdom of love, a kingdom of grace, a kingdom of mercy, of an everlasting type, what would be an appropriate response? What kingdoms are we living for that we should abandon? Are we living in mixed kingdom lives? One foot in one camp, so to speak, and another in the other? Has God's kingdom become convoluted with materialism, self-reliance of hyper-social justice issues? self-expression if we could return back to that C.S. Lewis quote it goes on it says fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement he is a rebel who must lay down his arms the way we rebel is we live self-reliant that's how we rebel we live life to our terms and to our desires. But C.S. Lewis goes on, he says, laying down your arms, surrendering, saying you are sorry, realizing that you've been on the wrong track, and get ready to start life over again from the ground floor, that is the only way out of our hole. This process of surrender, this movement is like full speed astern, that is to turn around it's what Christians call repentance some have said repentance is thinking differently and that's true it's looking again at the world and seeing it differently and that's true it certainly carries something of sorry to it and it absolutely means change In the first ever sermon preached after the resurrection of Jesus, they talked about the cross. And people sat here like you and me. And they said to Peter, who was preaching, they said, how should we respond if God has truly rolled a stone and set up a new kingdom and through all of this upside-downness of a death, burial, and resurrection, he's actually done it. How should we respond? They're like, how do I get in on this kingdom? I, want to, I don't want to be a part of kingdoms like gold, silver, and bronze, and clay that fall apart. If I'm going to bet my life on something, I want to live it for an everlasting kingdom. For a loving kingdom. For a graceful kingdom. For a peaceful kingdom. For a kingdom not of the fads of the political ideologies of our time, but for a kingdom that has nourished people's souls for centuries. I want to live for that type of kingdom. And so they asked him, how do we get in on this kingdom? And he says, would you repent? And we've talked about what that means. And would you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ? You will receive the forgiveness of sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit living inside of you. That kingdom now in here. Being baptized does mean being immersed in water. But it means more than that. 
It means being immersed in the ways of the kingdom. God's invitation to us today is not just to have a transactional exchange with him where we buy some insurance for the future of our souls. Because that's not how kingdoms work. You either live in them or you don't. Hope is the natural result of living in his kingdom. And as we walked in, if you had time to, we had the opportunity to pick up some hope and to decide whether or not we'd put our hope for our future in Jesus' hands. And we had the opportunity to let go of some things and decide if even our kingdoms could be let go of for something so much more precious. And we have so many burdens, sin, regret, worry, and future. We have the opportunity to lay those at Good Friday too. And then to light a candle. That light would come and resurrect our lives into this new kingdom. And tonight, all of us must choose if we have actually responded to the proportion of the news. People here have been following Jesus for a long time, some of you. But have you responded in proportion to the cross? Some of you, you left him a while ago. You haven't been following him. Tonight, the cross is your invitation to come back. And some of you, you don't know the love of Jesus in your life. And the cross is the invitation to invite it in.